Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Happy holidays. One and all, it's uh, it's the end of 2015. We're recording this on Christmas Eve. Welcome to Be Real, guys. I'm Chance Solenpfeiffer, and I'm Noah Ballard. This is our year-end episode. Yeah, and so I I first pitched Chance the idea of seeing every movie we hadn't seen, <laughs> and rating all the movies released in 2015. Turned out we didn't have 600 hours. Or, like, a, a shit ton of money, because these things are mostly still in the theaters. Listen, year-end lists are pretty played out. I think it's unfortunate with film, especially, that they come out and, like, the vast majority of people don't have access to the five best movies of the year yet. Um, and so we're, right. we're going in reverse. We're going to talk about uh, what you might have missed and what we did miss, based only on the trailer. Yeah, we certainly did uh, miss quite a few things. Quite a few interesting things, though. Yeah. Uh, um, so I had a lot of fun. So we decided on... How many do we end on, Chance? 40. We did 40 trailers. <laughs> so over the course of the next uh, indeterminate amount of time here in the, uh, the pod space, uh, we're going to be talking... We're going to be reviewing very quickly 40 movie trailers that we watched for movies that maybe you saw. We're going to read a couple things to get into it, kind of flesh out the idea. Uh, would you like to go first, Noah? Yeah, well, for me, trailers are an amazing and frustrating institution. On one hand, they give audiences a chance to sneak a peek of movies that are forthcoming at the theater to assess whether or not they want to spend their hard-earned money and use their precious time to view them. It's an advertisement like any other, and some trailers are great. They establish the pitch for entertainment, the who, the what, the where, the when... But others go too far, ruining the point of seeing a film, being stuck in a room staring at a screen for two hours, letting it play with your mind, by spoiling the content, oversimplifying the setup, or misrepresenting the product. As such, my reviews of the following trailers will be assessing trailers at their own form and their success in convincing me what the movie is and that I should see it. There you go. Um... I took a slightly different route just to kind of justify like the the movies that like we're talking about today. So, go for it. Hark. What's that? Is it the sound of two presses on a high piano key to start my trailer for this long-form discussion about to follow? What I want to tell you, bum, is something you maybe don't know yet. Bum. But it's vital to understanding the nature of the movies we're talking about today and how they're marketed. Bum bum. But for real, I'd argue that trailers are so similar, even though we may think we live in a customization-obsessed era of intensified taste curation, because for the most part, trailers are charged with helping us on our way to recognition. The vast movie-going public won't see something that doesn't register with them as a story they already, at least already think they know. And this is especially true for the crop of movies we're talking about today. 
My favorite part of preparing for today's episode is that examining Hollywood fare that comes to the screen in the spring and the fall outside of blockbuster and Oscar season is still a deceptively good way to tell where Hollywood's values reside. Because these movies aren't giant properties, they're not auteur projects. The 40 entries on this list, most of them made for about $45 million by that person who did that other movie that was just okay, are the ones the film industry both obligatorily sneaks by the press while also endlessly trying to hit a bottom line. They're the ones that are reliably of a type the one studio execs imagine a stressed out single mom in Ohio taking her kids to just to get out of the house, or the ones a lonely old man who sees everything will attend. The ones that America will go to see because secret agents, boxing, and robots are movies in the same way that Al Pacino, Vin Diesel, and Sandra Bullock comprise the idea of movies. Make no mistake, most of these, I won't say most, a lot of them do not look good, and they are assuredly, assuredly not good, but pouring a few hours into <laughs> analyzing an industry's soft middle is a meaningful way to take the pulse of a collective audience. 17 million people watch CSI every week, and people go to these movies because it's what you do. So enjoy the new Tarantino, Inurito, David O. Russell this award season, but keep listening and we'll tell you what in this crop of the mediocre, the average, and the forgotten might be worth your time on a quiet Saturday when you just want a movie star, a familiar destination, and something that doesn't push or challenge or innovate the way you think about movies. At best, like these trailers, they cement. I feel like and I, I feel like we're coming at it at two like sort of interesting not conflicting, but sort of interesting complementary angles. Yeah. Because I'm talking about the trailer as an institution, and you are too, at the, like at the base of it. But I'm talking about like just, I feel how like trailers are uh, their own thing, and you feel like it's just sort of a microcosm for, you know, the different genres, which we talk about every week. There you go. Well, let's, uh, yeah, let's work it out. I think I, the, what you said about uh, what these... I think particularly about what trailers reveal too much will be a good talking point as we dive in for some of these. Right. Because definitely some of them do. Shall we? So we, we're going to do this in alphabetical order. Yep. And we'll start with American Ultra. Yeah. And we're each going to, just so you're, you know, audience, uh, we're each going to uh, read a little, a little thing that we wrote that's really just a few sentences that will end with our rating. Uh, and then we'll like briefly discuss whatever else we may have to say. Can we... If we need to, yeah. Yeah, if we need to. Um, real fast, because our ratings are going to come at you 40 times instead of three. Uh, <laughs> we weigh on on two, on two metrics. The first one is what we deem to be technical quality. The second one is watchability. So something that's good, good, is really good quality and of high entertainment value. Good, bad. A Noah. godfather? Yep. Uh, what was the question? Good, bad. Good, bad. You know, like the like the King's Speech. Yeah. Um, you know, a movie that like wins a bunch of awards and like you feel good about seeing, but like you don't want to watch it over and over again. Right. Bad, good would be the opposite of that. One that you know is not like an incredible intellectual or cinematic experience, but that for its own reasons, maybe star power, maybe storytelling, is really watchable. Uh, and bad, bad fails in both qualities. All right, American Ultra. You want to alternate who goes American first on Ultra. these? Sure. Uh, do you want to start or shall I? I can start. In one of the most Let's Release This in August trailers I've ever seen, Jesse Eisenberg takes his 30 minutes or less sofa hair to its logical conclusion 
as a stoner Jason Bourne awakened from his civilian stupor. Topher Grace is your Conklin. Kristen Stewart stands in for Franca Potenta, while Eisenberg probably spends the first hour of the movie figuring out he can hurt people really well, and the last hour hurting people really well. The movie's only hope to be good good is if it, like its protagonist, is a sleeper agent and runs me through with the proverbial sp- proverbial spoon of quality. Otherwise, I'd say its mere, its mere premise dooms it to you waiting on a few laughs and hoping Eisenberg and Stewart look like they're really in love. Probably bad good. Hey, stop, stop doing stuff to my car. Hey, babes, what's up? Hey, I just killed two people. <laughs> That's awesome. No, they had guns and knives and they were being like total dicks. Ah! I took a spoon and I just like, mm, I like shoved it through this guy. Why are people trying to stab you? I don't know, but I'm like freaking out. <laughs> oh, all right. A solid cheesy voiceover brings us into this Bourne-esque spoof, juxtaposing violence and sight gags with Jesse Eisenberg's classic deadpan. And who else could play the romantic interest of this darkest Eisenberg timeline convenience store employee better than the unkempt, equally sad Kristen Stewart? I love them as lovable fuck-ups in Adventureland, so I like them here too. In what may be a violent sequel, landing somewhere between the aesthetic of the aforementioned theme park uh, mumble comedy and Zombieland with nods to Pineapple Express, thrown in just in case you were on the fence about getting real high before watching this. Good, good, and I'd probably see it. There you go. I like the idea. I do like the idea of Eisenberg and Stewart working together. Two people that do. They like to take interesting roles. They're a veritable Woody Allen and Diane Keaton. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's generous. Of a different genre, but it's just like that's that's who America is comfortable with seeing as just like dirty hipster intellectuals. Yeah. I won't argue with you. Let's get into Black Hat, shall we? I'll wear it. Equally transfixed with the coming singularity and the fear-mongering post-Sony hacks, Black Hat presents a pretty digestible Hollywood trope. Enlist the help of a hardened criminal to stop a worse criminal. This trailer, however, is burdened with a horrific cover of Bob Dylan's knocking on heaven's door (laughs) (laughs) over brutal hand-to-hand combat. And our buying into Chris Hemsworth's character seems contingent on being hypnotized by his greasy hair blowing in the wind. Seems like a pretty standard international hacker thriller dressed up as a profound dressed up as profound by Michael Mann's abrupt digital camera work. Bad good, but I'd probably wait to see it on HBO when I'm bored. Real hit is still to come. You get discovered, you're dead meat. How do you pitch Michael Mann in a trailer? He's a director incredibly skilled at visual sweep and scene setting in movies like Heat and Collateral. Maybe you show 45 seconds of the movie's best scene and move quickly from there? No. Black Hat would rather take the borderline in-a-world approach and tell us that hacking, in fact, exists and that some hackers could be hacking right now. Compounding my disinterest in any movie that truly stars Chris Hemsworth, Black Hat appears to apply one of today's most artistic directors, visual directors, I'll say, of space to a movie about computers, albeit computers around the world. I'm going to say bad, bad. Oh, that was awesome. Oh, okay. I wanted to tell you about a test I have for trailers. 
Trailers need to pass the this is only the beginning test. Trailers should not contain the phrase this is just the beginning or this is only the beginning. <laughs> oh, you mean he's going to hack more once the movie starts? Like no, no. Um And I Oh my god. I know you Is it fair to say that I like Michael Mann more than you? Oh yeah. Okay. I didn't realize Michael Mann is like 75. Did you know he was that old? Sure. Yeah, he, I mean, he only has like a basic understanding of like what a computer is. <laughs> it just made me sad because I didn't realize he was 75. So he could be like pretty well and done making movies and like this could be it. Right. I mean, he could have retired 10 years ago along with the rest of America. <laughs> Can't all be Ridley Scott. Um yeah. All right, burnt. Yeah, hit it. Light it up. Okay. <laughs> we might disagree about this one. The trailer for Burnt, a movie about an e- egomaniacal chef's big gamble, really just pitches a movie about subcultures in general. When I was really young, I got involved in this subculture, says Bradley Cooper. I got good at it. Is this a subculture important? Is this subculture important, someone else asks? It is if you're in the subculture, another person says. You hope there's something about food in there that feels essential, but I don't believe that John Wells, and I don't believe in John Wells, the director, and the world might have been a little premature in assuming Bradley Cooper could hoist an entire movie just on his star power. I'm gonna say bad, bad. I was 16, I quit school. I saved just enough for a one-way ticket to Paris. Maybe I just wanted it really bad, and then when I got it too early, I didn't know how to hold on to it. What do you want? I'm gonna run the best restaurant in the world. All right. Uh, Presented in a series of high-stakes cooking montages that would give any Food Network enthusiast a boner, with a healthy serving of tortured artist attempting, attempting a comeback thrown in for emotional weight, Burnt tells the story of a master chef who's his own worst enemy. We know this through shots of Bradley Cooper in the leading role, throwing dishes, yelling at women, and being chased through. What is that, Paris? A minimal driver-esque score builds the pressure, heat, and madness of the chef life. And if that wasn't clear enough, Bradley Cooper tells us how much he loves the pressure, heat, etc. of the kitchen in a heavy-handed voiceover. Landing somewhere between no reservations and whiplash, this film is either a vocational melodrama or a desperate Oscar grab. Good, bad, unless it gets nominated for something, which it doesn't look like it will. Pass. (laughs) Yeah, I don't believe that... So, like, presumably the climax of this movie are going to be, like, Brad Cooper freakouts, right? Yeah, but then he'll, like, get that good review or get that third star or whatever fucking thing he needs. I don't think John Wells has the chop to shoot that. If, and I love the whiplash thing, if Damien Chazelle or maybe, like, Steve McQueen was directing this, those, like, moments could carry the day, but I doubt it. Yeah, I'm not feeling it. Yeah. You're burnt. Oh, man. Chappie? Uh, (laughs) Should we get into Chappie? I am Chappie? A su- oh my god, <laughs> excuse me. A pseudo explosions in the sky soundtrack <laughs> highlights this modern. <laughs> Hi- 
highlights this modern-day Pinocchio story of a robot who attempts to become a real boy. Wow. The score and personification of what is ultimately a big hunk of metal, along with Hugh Jackman's unfortunate haircut, (laughs) makes me feel like this is going to be a sad movie about how humans don't understand humanity, culminating in Chappie's ultimate demise. (laughs) The trailer really wants this movie to be moving, but it comes off as a saccharine dystopian play on a fairly familiar story. Good, bad, but I probably won't see it. It's like a child. It has to learn. Your name, Chappie. Chappie. Anything you want to do in your life, you can do. Write poetry, have original ideas. Wow. It's a movie of which Noah said during our Ex Machina pod earlier this year, what are you supposed to do? Hug the robot? Give me a break. (laughs) (laughs) But if you were... I didn't say that. Yeah, you did. But if you were worried you'd only love the sentient Chappie, here's Hugh Jackman with a haircut like a four-year-old hockey player giving a press conference (laughs) where he outlines simply that artificial intelligence is unpredictable. The trailer really takes that central conflict route. Everyone states their support, their opposition for Chappie, and here we go. What will Chappie decide? What say we don't watch this movie and never find out? Bad, bad. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. Um, A little more seriously, Neil Blomkamp did District 9, and while I don't love that movie, the idea for it was super rich because you had like the resonances of South African apartheid and a lot of different social things to explore movies about whether robots who can feel are good or bad are not interesting. No, especially like the, the realism in which he sets them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. All right. Cop car. Cop car. A la mud. Cop car looks like you're, (laughs) Great. All right. A la mud, cop car looks like your modern day Tom Sawyer story. And it's, and wait, hold on. And it's trailer earnestly pitches its own simple setup. You get that the kids will find this abandoned cop car and the corrupt sheriff Kevin Bacon has a body in the trunk and will certainly give chase. But there's more story to tell, like who are the other people running around in the trailer, where the boys come from, and how, how Bacon deceives people and who will ultimately champion the kids against him. In a rare moment of trailer self-awareness I quite like, Kevin Bacon simply screams the title of the movie, doubling down on the idea that the car is just the four-door reckoning point for the rest of the story. I'm going to say good, good. How far do you think they've gone? 50 miles. I think we're almost to the woods. Put down. What? The cop car. There's no one in there. Sweeping southwest panoramas and an immediate pull quote want the viewer to think Coen Brothers. And wife-beatered Kevin Bacon is clearly up to no good chasing down two young boys who have stolen the titular cop car. But with delicate plays on a MacGuffin in the trunk and Cameron Manheim looking like she's going to be a martyr in this whole mess, Mm -hmm. there's enough there to be exciting and plausible without uh, falling into too many action movie cliches. Good, good. And I'll probably seek this one out. I will, too. And you know Kevin Bacon is really good at... I think he's... All I can think of is uh, The River Wild, but he's very good at playing villains who are extra slimy because they everyone else thinks they're good. Crimson Peak? Hit, uh, yeah. Guillermo del Toro's Crimson Peak? 
The resume of Guillermo del Toro, a nice Stephen King endorsement, and my love of Jessica Chastain can't save the campy aesthetic and painful accents on display no! in this trailer. Seems like most of the scares of this wannabe classic ghost story are revealed in the trailer, with the none-too-subtle reveal that Chastain is the villain early on, Crimson Peak looks to be a solid entry into the genre, but doesn't look like it'll transcend its limitations. Bad, good, and proceed with caution. <laughs> Edith, this is my sister. I don't think she's the right choice. You have to trust me. Thomas, your bride is frozen. I'll run you a hot bath. My best and genuine hope for Crimson Peak is that its trailer is a perfect microcosm, foregrounding the style, taste, and mobility of director Guillermo del Toro, against a very, very old, familiar haunted mansion story. You hope the movie ends up drawing out environmental textures as easily as all those black ghost hands you see coming out of walls. And with Jessica Chastain, a performer who I can only describe as my girl, in the role of the newlywed Tom Hiddleston's suspicious and domineering Victorian sister, the Chastain cheekbone murder draws ever closer. It's a good good for me. <laughs> oh, that's great. You think, was this the first one for you that uh, you revealed way too much? Yeah, I think that was the first one where it's like, okay, man, like, just if they had just set up the idea that she was just going to be living in this house, that would have been, I think, enough to get people in there right. based on Guillermo del Toro and Stephen King and all the aforementioned press it got. You don't need to know that Tom Hiddleston is a ghost. Yeah, and that the sister is like, whatever. Yeah, I buy that. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. I just really... I'm excited for this one. I'd like to see it. I just, I like the idea of someone being like, I'm going to take a Vincent Price movie in 2015 and make it with some confidence yeah. and like this caliber of performer. Daddy's home? Hit it. I think this movie comes out tomorrow, but whatever. The lesson to be learned from Hit the- it. Got it. The lesson to be learned from the Daddy's Home trailer is that no good movie has ever featured a scene at a Lakers game. Be cool, Jack and Jill- it's an idea with the crispness of Kobe Bryant's 20th season. But then, much like the 2015 Lakers, what is this story of a stepdad-biological-father rivalry starring Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg, respectively, have to pass the ball to? A scene of Will Ferrell driving a motorcycle into a wall? Or perhaps Will Ferrell falling onto the ground? Maybe just the outtakes from the <laughs> other guys? This one's gonna be bad, bad for me. The king received word that his dominion was being ruled over by some curly-headed step king with good credit. Oh no! Sounds like your dad's spending quite a yarn. Oh, actually, it's getting late. Aww. Good night, my little magical cherubs. <laughs> a clever, if not expected, turn from silly family comedy to masculine showdown makes the trailer for Daddy's Home inherently watchable. Though it's not <laughs> hard to wonder if most of the good jokes around this dad rivalry aren't spoiled by the trailer. However, Farrell versus Wahlberg could be an interesting ride, if not a stupid one. Classic music cues like Highway to Hell create an ultimately inoffensive sight gag heavy exploration of a biological and stepfather duel. Bad good for me, but I'd catch this on television. That's fair. Um, I just feel bad that Linda Cardellini <laughs> has to be in this movie. Yeah, sure. She has to be the wife. You know there's going to be a scene where she just, like, ogles her ex-husband's body. I don't know. Whatever. Let's get, oh let's get to better stuff. Let's get to Danny Collins. 
Oh, Danny Collins. Do it. Uh, <laughs> I want to quit this podcast and watch Danny Collins right now. <laughs> oh, man. Al Pacino's mullet stars as a major... <laughs> Uh, Al Pacino's mullet stars as a Mick Jagger type looking to reconnect with a son he's never met in the old people pandering trailer that looks for authenticity by dropping as many John Lennon references as possible and relying on a once top actor to ground a silly formulaic plot. This is Danny Collins. A solid supporting cast, including Annette Bening and Jennifer Garner, can't save this worn premise. Another entry into Pacino's recent and boring oeuvre with similar themes to an also underwhelming looking The Humbling. It's bad, bad for me, and I have no intention of seeing this. I haven't written a song in 30 years. You're having a breakdown. I'm broken. Ain't nothing left to break. What would have happened if I got that letter when I was supposed to? I want to cancel the rest of the tour. I need a plane. Jersey. Oh, welcome to the Hilton. Al Pacino is the Neil Diamond story. The sag years. The washed, <laughs> <laughs> the washed up legacy pop artist Danny Collins goes on an apology tour of the East Coast and tries to write new material on what looks to be a pretty quiet and I'm over a certain kind of vanity performance from the 75-year-old Pacino. When he performs, it's going to be a lot of silhouette shots from behind. And when he tries to reconcile with his son and daughter-in-law, played by Bobby Cannavale and Jennifer Garner, We'll get to see a weathered face try for a few big apologies. Done well, it could have the deeply flawed charm of The Bucket List, the kind of film that does its best to leave you and its protagonist with no regrets. I'm going to say bad good. I just, I, I, just, I just don't think it can be good. You don't think it could be funny? I don't. I think at worst you could hate watch this movie. Or at best, you could hate watch this movie. Um... But at worst, it's like... I don't know. I don't. I guess I don't mind it. Like, Jack Nicholson and Robert De Niro have each made ten of these movies. So, like, I don't know. Pacino can take a run. I just don't necessarily want to watch Al Pacino, like, pick up a motel, like, worker. <laughs> and then, like, wine and dine her. Ultimately convince her that, like, deep down he is a good guy. While in the subplot, he, like, reconciles with his son he's never met culminating in like a feel-good moment at the end like tinged with like a bittersweet like but then somebody passes away or something that's true i got you like that's just i just you're not down if it's on hbo i'll i'll maybe watch it the interesting thing the pitch perfect thing about just watching the trailer for this is that al pacino looks perfect for this role wouldn't you say Oh, yeah. He's, he's just that, like, very specific. Old leather suitcase look about him. Yeah, a very specific kind of gross that's like a, fa- <laughs> a famous person who's like kept themselves up, but their body is still like rotting away. Right. It's perfect. Um, Shall we uh, scale Mount Everest? Aha. So Josh Brolin, Jake Gyllenhaal, and Jason Clark are climbing a mountain. Three guesses who's the lead, and you're not guessing Jason Clark, and maybe that's why this movie looks so unappealing. The marketing of a sheer, colorless struggle with an actor to boot. And yes, the trailer assures us there'll be a few terrifying exposed ladder shots of bodies dangling over the jaws of hell. But fear of falling in a desperate phone call to Kiera Knightley playing a conserved wife, spare me that giant waste of talent, do not a memorable movie experience make. Maybe good bad for the cinematography? You, my friends, are following in the very footsteps of history. 
something beyond the power of words to describe. Human beings simply aren't built to function at the cruising altitude of a 747. Our bodies will be literally dying. Jason Clark seems to be making a living delivering speeches that ground the main emotional hook of sweeping <laughs> films like Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and Terminator Genesis, but he can't quite land why anyone feels the need to scale Mount Everest. This kind of movie really hangs in the bravery and duty in the face of danger, but this trailer plays like a bunch of stupid thrill-seekers played by big-time actors with covered faces getting what they deserve. The effects and location work might be something awesome, but I don't buy it. And the most troubling part, Jake Gyllenhaal is in this movie, though he's not actually featured. Bad, bad, and I'm not going to see this. I won't see it either. It's a really bad sign that for a movie with this cast, you didn't hear anything about it all year. Yeah. You know? That's never a good sign. No. The best shots, I'm sure, are in the trailer. That ladder shot. Yeah. And, yeah. Whale. Goosebumps? I'm in. Reviewing kids' movie trailers is great. I love it. Classic setup. Teenager begrudgingly moves with single mother to new town and encounters actual children's author R.L. Stein, and a sort of Jumanji takes over that, like Jumanji relied on Robin Williams, relies on Jack Black's comedic timing and the clever lines delivered by pretty, albeit unknown, teen actors. The conceit of this movie especially is a fan of the book series Goosebumps and the low-budget TV movies that they spawned, I also, and also having met real R.L. Stein on several occasions, is a strange meta-narrative that doesn't seem to justify its own existence. Bad, bad for me, and I won't see it on principle. Whoa, the abominable snowman of Pasadena? These are all Goosebumps manuscripts. Why are these books locked? Did you unlock a book? Oh no, I'm sorry. I'll put it back where it belongs. Look, here it is. Look. No, don't open it! I'm right with you. If you remember the opening credits of the 1990s Goosebumps TV show, you'll recall that right before that dog turns into a demon dog, it's actually R.L. Stein's open briefcase, blowing his manuscript pages across town, that unleashes his endlessly campy horror stories on the world. Goosebumps the movie takes that idea a step further, going full Jumanji with it. Jack Black plays the author while 17-year-old kids meant to appeal to 12-year-old kids run around town having led all the monsters out of his literal books. Seems like an innocent enough movie, and you know Jack Black is down to goof off. But it's hard for me to sign off on the point of stamping an old property's name on a not-so-related idea trying to sell it to disinterested kids in 2015. You could just watch the show and enjoy its endless or its preposterous feeling of serialization. Probably inoffensive, but probably bad, bad. There you go. And I just don't like the idea of... We talked about The Lost Pod. We talked about Cabin in the Woods. Like, just gathering horror tropes in one place and letting them fight. No. Do you want to take on In the Heart of the Sea, Chance? Sure, I can do that. I'm glad we included this one, because there's probably no trailer this year that forged all my confusion and reticence about a movie, which is this exercise today happening full bore in real life. Here's a whaling adventure film touting its connection to one of the most respected pieces of literature ever, but not with a particularly literary director and a leading man in, again, Chris Hemsworth, that's never shown himself to be capable of showing more on screen than Braun. 
In the movie's nauseous green hue, it looks like its peak moments, again shown in the trailer, are the sperm whale crushing the boat and Chris Hemsworth saying he doesn't plan on dying. All due respect to Ron Howard, but those contradictions, its lack of patience, and its marketing leave me to give it a bad bad. Say it! Say it! Say it, scared! I will not. Fish movies should take a lesson from Jaws, <laughs> at least in their trailers. The less you see of the actual fish, the more likely you are to be scared by it. This trailer suffers from relying on unjustified effects and a failure to present stakes for these characters. The greenish, nauseating hue and nonspecific epic score, with its clear reliance on both Herman Melville and Ron Howard's previous critical acclaim, make me both seasick and uninterested in whatever this movie is selling. Bad, bad, and I probably won't see it. Hell yeah! I'm glad we were together on that one. Jupiter Ascending. (laughs) Oh, man. Sean Bean's dramatic voiceover can't do much to clarify this confused sci-fi pastiche about a man, I guess, trying to save Mila Kunis's eyebrows from that Stephen Hawking actor, unless he's a good guy, but I, I can't really tell. Nor can a blonde bearded Channing Tatum allow the viewer to buy into this film's protagonist in this trailer, which ultimately devolves into bright, context-free special effects. Bad, bad, not planning to see this one either. You're the perfect hunting machine. Fearless, relentless. You've been searching for one thing your whole life. And she's down there. One of the odder flip sides of trailers spilling out more and more of their movies post 2000 is that when they don't, it can seem like there's a big problem. And the first trailer for the Wachowski's Jupiter Ascending seems like it's hiding something. Is it the fact that Channing Tatum plays a part-dog mercenary? Or do the Wachowskis just make movies too complicated, imaginative, and ultimately flawed to bother with a reductive plot sample? I won't say this movie about Jupiter, played by Mila Kunis, being queen of the universe looks good, because it doesn't. But it could just be weird enough to be watchable. Maybe bad good. Very. That's fair. I, I like that you're... I like that you're willing to forgive it for just not having a very good trailer. Yeah, it was not a good trailer. Um, all right, this is one of the main events, this next one here. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, me, okay. Is this Eli Roth's Knock We're Knock? We're talking about Knock Knock. So I selected Knock Knock for this exercise. Not because there's any doubt in my mind it's a bad, bad movie, but rather just to briefly discuss with my colleague the nature of Keanu Reeves' career and that he would be in a psychosexual low-grade horror movie about a handsome architect and two murderous temptresses. In this trailer, Keanu... (laughs) In this trailer, Keanu growls the phrase, Sprinkles, doing a bad impression of himself. He stares at geometric shapes on his computer. He holds his family dog that almost certainly dies to show the seriousness of the two women and their glee in terrorizing him. Being in a movie of this caliber is the sort of thing that doesn't really happen to former leading men today, because not everyone can be in Eli Roth movies. If softcore porn had been steadier in the cultural lexicon 35 years ago, maybe Charles Bronson would have answered the knock-knock on the door. Bad, bad. (laughs) Oh man, you really went to work on that one. Chocolate with sprinkles. Everybody packed. 
A typical Wes Craven score lets you know that not all is well in this idyllic upper-middle-class neighborhood. Enter slutty teens looking to get that bearded Keanu D. But that's not all they're <laughs> <No>. after. <laughs> but that's not all they're after, Chance. They're after a funny games-type home invasion that will test a father and husband's morality and potentially his will to live. I hate Eli Roth, but I'll give this a good bad. Probably won't see it, though. Okay. Um, <laughs> let's talk briefly about Keanu's house in this trailer. There are so many pictures of the family, like a conspicuous number that are only there to establish his guilt, right? Right. And then, did you feel at all like there was an, like maybe an anti-consumerist streak in this movie when they like break all his vinyl and postmodern art? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what the, I mean, knowing Eli Roth, there's like not much of a, you know, a, like a morality tale in this, um, but that might be there. All right. All right. Tis the season. Tis the season to review, review the trailer for the movie Krampus. Do it Could up. it be another dark Christmas comedy? Everyone knows how much I love those. There's Adam Scott. There's Tony Collette. There's a kid throwing a letter to Santa out, Santa out the window. Uh-oh. I'll tell you what kind of a goat walks on its hind legs. It's fucking Krampus. <laughs> this looks like the kind of campy, wonderful Christmas movie that Chance and I can potentially agree on. Good, good for me. I'd see this, and then inevitably be disappointed that it's not very good. We heard something on the roof. What the hell is this? <laughs> if there's one thing trailers don't do very well, it's tonal versatility. You sell a movie as dark, sentimental, badass, knee-slapping, but rarely is there a layer of irony or confusion about what a movie is up to. Krampus looks weird not only because it brings to life the Germanic nightmare tale of St. Nicholas's child-punishing shadow, but because what <laughs> tone this movie will strike isn't totally clear. Tony Collette and Adam Scott wouldn't do a blow-off B-horror movie in 2015, but Krampus appears to take its monsters seriously. Out of sheer throw-you-off-the-scent curiosity more trailers should aim for, I'm gonna say good good, I'm interested. That's funny. I like that you. Uh, I like that you're willing to buy into this movie in the same reason, like the same way I was. Yeah, it just looks kind of bizarre. Yeah, it does. I certainly would not see it in theaters, though. No, I would like catch it for free on Netflix when it inevitably ends up there. Right. Magic Mike XXL, the sequel. Hit of- it. There you go. All right, so Magic Mike XXL makes clear its departure from the first Steven Soderbergh movie straight away. With the trailer that highlights the actual choreographed strip teases and the pro-women credo by which Channing Tatum and company now work. Having not seen the original, I went back and watched that trailer too, which tries to establish the pitfalls and limitations of even a successful stripper's life via story and character examination. This new movie seems to know nothing but the dance. I'm going to say it's probably bad good and doesn't care how ridiculous it gets. I got a little treat for y'all tonight. We're going to see if he still got some magic in that mic. Tomorrow... Start the pilgrimage to Myrtle Beach for the convention. 
a self-aware trailer that understands why people want to see Magic Mike XL. With just enough sex to make you buy a ticket, this trailer provides the setup, a buddy road trip movie, with the hook of the original, watching toned men dance for women. <laughs> Great teases for Andy McDowell and Jada Pinkett Smith being sassy add to the appeal of this film, which is ultimately a good, good trailer, though I don't think I'm the target demo. I don't think so either. No. Nor was I <laughs> the target demo for uh, Maze Runner, but... Maze Runner colon Scorch Trials. Yeah. Have at it. I'm excited about this one. Having not seen any of the Maze Runner movies, nor read the books, it's hard to buy into a sequel to another run-of-the-mill dystopian teen movie. I guess Littlefinger's the bad guy or good guy in this one, <laughs> and some dumb-looking exterior shots of... <clears throat> And some dumb-looking exterior shots of a destroyed New York uh, are supposed to ground this world within our own. But I just see a Game of Thrones bid with a Hunger Games longing. Bad, bad. And I probably won't catch up. I think it's safe to say the maze trials were a complete success. It's too soon to say, but they could be the key to everything. It's time now to begin phase two. Welcome to the Scorch! Setting Star Wars aside, the hero's journey archetype is perhaps most alive and well in dystopian young adult fantasy, and the Maze Runner, Scorch Trials, the second, darker movie in this series, wants to be your new Empire Strikes Back, or your new Hunger Games Catching Fire. Having survived what I can only assume was a maze by what I can only assume was running, this young white male, probably named Kip or Gavin, is moving on to the Scorch Trials, <laughs> and Peter Baelish even tells us that the Scorch Trials are way worse than the maze. Ah, oh, tremendous heat! But no, <laughs> this movie is probably bad, bad. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Uh, what's that guy's actual I name? Don't... Aiden Gillen? Who cares? <laughs> I hope he does the thing where he talks like a pirate into the guy's face after starting the movie with a different accent. I'd really appreciate right. that. Uh, speaking, uh, speaking of accents in popular films, you want to hit <laughs> McFarland, USA? I do. True story alert. Proving once and for all that true stories of white people being coaches and maybe relating to maybe exploiting athletes of color do happen. McFarland USA appears to be a white savior story so hackneyed with Kevin Costner's gym teacher tapping into the natural talent of young Hispanic runners in California's Central Valley. It need not break into the singing part of where the streets have no name, but then it does. I hate these kinds of movies because you wouldn't take the part of the old white guy if you didn't believe there was value in old whiteness. And having also released Black and White this year, Costner clearly thinks it's the most important thing in the world. Be in a good movie, Kevin Costner. You're 60. Take a supporting role. <laughs> bad, bad. <laughs> oh, man. And now you're about to hear the exact same thing in a different way. Okay. Welcome to McFarland. This is a farming town. These kids working here are invisible. They come from the fields and they go back to the fields. Mr. White, if we're gonna reach him, now's the time. Turn the white guilt up to 11 <laughs> because here's a Disney movie based on a true story. <laughs> Similar to Million Dollar Arm, Cool Runnings, and whatever racially themed sports movie you can think of, McFarland explores Kevin Costner, the titular white in black and white, being a good guy despite enormous odds, even though we're never quite sure what those are. But the stakes are high. We know this because the streets have no names, Chance. None at all. 
Bad, bad, no thanks. Wow. That was exactly the same. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. He's got to stop. He's got to stop making yeah. these movies. Reviewing that one was a pretty easy mission, but it was no <laughs> Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. I would, I would listen to Alec Baldwin say anything. Thus, the reason I listen to his podcast and having him narrate this trailer is a stroke of genius. Great music cues, orchestration over pop songs, only heighten the otherwise tired, boring Mission Impossible series. It's got stunts, A-list actors, jokes, and it's gonna be an IMAX. Fuck yes, I'm in. Good, good. I'll see the shit out of this. The IMF is uniquely trained and highly motivated. Specialist without equal immune to any countermeasures. But it is an agency of chaos. With the release of the fifth Mission Impossible movie, we're safely in the episodic, inoffensive territory I'm gonna call Cruise Bond. Round up the old crew, make sure Ving Rhames gets one role every four years, torture Cruise a little before he escapes, show us the movie's biggest set piece, and cue the theme music. While no one really cares that much about where Mission Impossible ends up as a franchise, it appears to have kept things light and visually ambitious enough for the trailer to feel like it's for a movie, and a movie universe, and not a self-serious cataclysm. Sometimes, ending is overrated. Just do. Tom Cruise. Can't lose. I'd bet this is bad good. Oh, man. Nice. That's the best part about Star Wars, by the way, uh, without talking about the plot at all. You just feel like it was a movie that was made by people who loved it and like thought what they were doing was cool. And there are eight, mm-hmm. eight trailers before the Star Wars movie that are just like, the only way to make our movie memorable is to show the end of the world. And it's just horrible. Right. And this movie looks fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. You want to get on that old Mississippi grind? I would like that. I'm just really down for the kind of movie Mississippi Grind appears to be. A 20th century Americana study about gambling with a few good montages and a road trip element as they hit casinos southward along the river in the title. Give Ben Mendelsohn a leading role chance and Ryan Reynolds his 30th leading role chance. Put professionals in a room and let them talk about life and fate. Have at least one good gambling parable and one appearance, excuse me, and one appearance from a sage older player and it's a good good for me. Maybe it'll make Noah want to rewatch Color of Money. How's everybody feeling tonight? It's okay by me. Let's play some cards, huh? Aces are good, right? I'm usually good at reading people, right? But you're all over the map. I can't spot your toe. Fold. You want to know why? Yeah. I don't care about winning. Ryan Reynolds looking tired and Ben Mendelsohn looking like himself. Here's a Buddy Road movie. Gambling, sad bastards, Americana at its finest. Wow. Maybe it's a heist movie? Who cares? It's from the writer-director of Half Nelson, and that's all it takes Noah Ballard to march down to the Angelica and drop $16. <laughs> this film seems to really capture the insanity and the drive one needs in order to gamble with a passion, and that makes for some compelling drama with a ton of darkness simmering just below the surface. Good, bad, and I'd see this. Um, Maybe we can see this. I don't think it's out yet, though. No, it came out over the summer. Oh, did it? It barely got a release, though. Oh, I think I'm going to seek this one out, though. I will, too. Um, We're almost halfway through. Can I just say, I think we agree on these trailers a lot more than we agree on actual movies. 
Maybe we should stop. We should stop watching actual movies and just watch trailers and then have a 10 second podcast. It would, it would certainly take less time. Right. Um, Mordecai. What a terrible goddamn trailer. <laughs> From the bullshit Tom Jones music cue all the way down to Johnny Depp's dumb fucking mustache. I hated every second of this two minute and 30 second trailer. Garbage. No surprise this movie flopped. Bad, bad, no fucking way. <laughs> I am Lord Charlie Mordecai. Respected by all who know me slightly. Man down. I am an art dealer and aficionado. <laughs> Noah said in our October podcast about Johnny Depp's gangster movie turns, I think Johnny Depp is a great actor, a horrible leading man. Well, Noah, would Johnny Depp playing an impish English old money pink panther type change your tune? The plot of... <laughs> <laughs> the sure plot wouldn't. of... It does not, probably. The plot of Mordecai meets at the junction of jokes about art dealing with the safety of the free world. Plus, it appears to hinge on the culture shock of coming to America from England, which appears to be code for, we've run out of British actors who want to be in this nightmare of a secret agent farce. Other than that, <laughs> it looks like sexuality-bending quirks Depp couldn't work into Tim Burton movies. Obviously bad, bad. There you go. Yep. No argument there. Not gonna see that one. <laughs> Ooh, I got all fired up about this next one. Oh, me too. Go ahead. We're talking about uh, number 21 on our list, My All-American. The bigger problem than My All-American ultimately telling a boring story of a college football walk-on who, wait for it, tried really hard, is that its dramatic hook, communicated in the trailer via quasi-Christian indie pop, appears to be that the titular football player injures his leg while playing football. Does this mean 10 people from my fantasy football team this year should have a movie? Or the dozens and dozens of players I root for every week while managing the guilt of even enjoying this unconscionable sport? Oh wait, most of those people aren't white. Sorry, writer of Rudy and Hoosiers. I forgot what kind of movies gets made, and I think yours looks bad, bad. Go. Freddie Steinmark. His dad trains him pretty hard. He's here every day after his practice. All I know is he's exceptionally dreamy. You have to start the car. Uh, here. No, I can get Hi. 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 Do you want to go out sometime? With the sports patina of a Rudy or Hoosiers, this seems like a sports camp rainy day field trip territory. And I say that with all due respect because I find college football very compelling. However, this film is certainly hindered by no recognizable face other than Aaron Eckhart doing his best coach, Taylor. Bad good, and I'd catch it on TV on one of the aforementioned rainy afternoons. Mm. Alright, whatever. What do you think looks good about it? It just looks like a, like a pretty dumb, you know, sort of American, uh, this is how we feel about sports and injuries, and sometimes you just gotta play through the pain kind of mentality that, like, I guess we're trying to teach our children. Alright. Tell the but truth. I'm not saying... It, Tell it, the truth! Yeah. Um. Oh, that's, that's it, your Will Smith doing concussion? That's nice. That was. Yeah. Our brand is crisis. Our brand is crisis. Well, here comes Clooney and Heslov with more of their based on a true story bullshit liberal political commentary. <laughs> you Here's really a don't like campaign that stuff. Strat What's that? You really don't like that stuff. 
Here's a political campaign strategist, a bespeckled Sandra Bullock grabbing desperately for a ward night attention, trying to win a third world election, but also find her soul or something, be a good person, etc. And the trailer won't let you forget that. Commentary with sight gags and a CCR soundtrack. Try harder, guys. <clears throat> Try harder, guys. Bad, bad. I'll see it when Trump wins the goddamn election and I need something to hold on to. <sighs> It's a presidential campaign in South America. Fragile democracy, economy in real trouble. Our candidate is considered arrogant and out of touch with people's lives. How far are you behind? 28 points. <laughs> Moving past the fact that the title for this movie sounds like a crossed off name idea for a late career public enemy record, I think I could watch Sandra Bullock be generally, genuinely conflicted for just under two hours. Here's a story about political campaign jockeying where the movements of the trailer perfectly mirror those of the movie. It's strategist Sandy Bullock's last chance. She begrudgingly accepts a spot managing a Bolivian candidate. A rival Billy Bob Thornton doing James Carville appears, and she realizes that politics aren't just a game. I'm gonna say bad good, but hopefully it doesn't contain too many, f too much fish out of water humor at the expense of Latin America. Did you see the trailer for uh, Whiskey Tango Foxtrot? It sounds really Which is familiar. basically the same movie, but with Tina Fey in the lead role. Oh, I definitely haven't. Oh, you should watch it. It's interesting, but it looks really like similar to our brand is crazy. Does it look better? Um. Well, our brand is crisis was based on a documentary. Oh. And Whisco Whiskey Tango Foxtrot is based on like a memoir. Okay. So, I'm not sure. I mean, it, it it's a very similar trailer. Gotcha. Basing a movie on a documentary is a very boring thing to do. Right. Clooney and Heslov with their boring liberal bullshit. Did they make Ides of March? Of course they did. You hate that. It's not very good. That's why I hate it. All right. Uh, talking about Point Break, a movie that comes out tomorrow. Uh, there's a litany of reasons for the backlash against the remake of this 1991 cult hit. But the best one that lives in both the Point Break trailer and the new Point Break trailer is that the new one seems to be determined to iron out weirdness. This remake of the movie where an FBI agent goes undercover with adventure-seeking thieves foregrounds their philosophical ambition to redistribute and disrupt systems of wealth. But because you know from the series of bad line deliveries, this movie will likely be unequipped un un to articulate a philosophical quandary, why bother? When it comes to all-time bad good movies like Point Break, the question of what if we did it for real this time is one that I strongly resent. Bad, bad. So why not deploy your chute above the jungle and escape like a normal person? Because I'm thinking these aren't normal people, sir. I believe that, like me, the people behind these robberies are extreme athletes. Dude, I, have to, oh, I have a confession to make. What? I forgot to do this one. <laughs> That's all right. What do you? I mean, you've certainly seen the trailer. What are you, are you gonna see it? <sighs> I mean, there's just something great about Delroy Lindo. <laughs> That's the reprising only... his role from Gone in sixty seconds on the FBI level or the Interpol level, trying to catch these. Uh, modern day Robin Hoods who I guess are giving money to the poor. Yeah. But there's, wasn't the whole point of the first point break because they were surfers, right? Yes. 
And like that's the whole like point break is like when the wave crashes, like the point break and they're, they're surfer people. But this one didn't seem to have any surfing in it. So I, I wonder like why they didn't just make a new movie. Yep. Great point. Uh, moving on. Is it my turn to rock the Casbah? Yes, sir. I tell you what isn't a good idea for a movie. <laughs> Take the basic premise of the movie Ishtar, the cheesiest David Bowie music cues, and a title from a ubiquitous rock song, throw Bill Murray in there, and hope for the best. There, this is the kind of bullshit uh, Barry Levinson has been making these past few years. Envy, Man of the Year, What Just Happened, The Humbling, movie with great ca- movies with great casts, but no real reason for being. And that seems to be the cast here, too. Or, <clears throat> I mean, that seems to be the case here, too. Bad, bad. But I'd catch who was playing in the background or something. <laughs> I was a rock tour manager. And this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to tour with my act. To Afghanistan? Rock music in 2015 might be the most innocuous symbol of rebellion there is. So why not let Bill Murray swing it around the Middle East like a prop? Tour manager Richie Lands is ditched in Afghanistan by his artist Zoe Deschanel, and then Murray's famous friends pop up, which is what, most of Hollywood? To help the stranded 65-year-old find new talent and a few cultural lessons in the desert. It's a movie you watch for Murray's win-your-smile charm, and the feeling of mostly innocent fuck-uppery finding a way to educate conservatism. I'm gonna say good-bad. Or no, sorry, sorry, bad-good. Poor quality. Okay. Maybe I would watch it. Okay. I think you'd ultimately be unsatisfied by it, though. I'm sure I would. I don't know why the uh, idea of our brand is crisis being, like, culturally insensitive was, like, I don't know, troubling to me when I know that this one probably does the same thing. If not a worse offender, yeah. <sighs> yeah. But when you want to work off the guilt from watching that movie, maybe you could just run all night, Chance. <laughs> it's true. Noah, I'd wager the baseline for any of these Liam Neeson's very particular set of skills movies is as crystal clear as Tal Bono's piercing blue eyes. He's going to come running, at the speed of a car, mind you, with goodness, toughness, weariness, and a moral killing code that hinges only on completing his mission. In a big way, it'll be the actors around Neeson, the people who are almost always huddled in the dark in the Run All Night trailer, who push it toward failure or success. Ron All Night offers you Ed Harris, who is great, and who I do not trust, but it seems, unfortunately, to highlight the peril of Liam Neeson's son and family, because a man Neeson's age knows no other stakes but his boring kid being in danger. Maybe bad good? <laughs> I'm the only one ever cared about you. And all of that ended an hour ago when you killed my son. I pulled the trigger. I killed Eddie. He was going to shoot Michael. There's something brilliant about the trailer for Run All Night, <laughs> and it speaks, and it speaks to what a film trailer should do: give you the exposition of the film in question, show you the scope of the movie, including setting, main characters, and overarching conflict, and establish the tone. This trailer hits all those. Father and son must team up after the accidental death of a mobster's son. Neeson, Harris, Robocop, Common, hell, even Vincent D'Onofrio's in there. And my God, they're going to run around New York and things are going to explode in a stylistic fashion. Honorable mention for that goofy yet stirring Danny Boy music cue. Good, good, and I'd watch the hell out of this on Netflix. (laughs) 
All right, I buy that. That was pretty convincing. Uh, Thank you. I was glad to see D'Onofrio with his Law and Order Criminal Intent hair back again. Between right, he's gotten some some weird uh, directions lately about what his hair should do. Yeah, absolutely. So that was nice. Yeah. Uh, I also <clears> like <throat> the scene where they appeared to be sword fighting with flaming clubs. Like that was love that. that was in yeah. the collage outro. Nice. Selfless. I tell you what isn't a good idea for a movie. An action movie reimagining of Freaky Friday starring Ryan Reynolds, who is already insufferable in The Change-Up, a comedy of switched personas. What also isn't good in this trailer that gives away not only the plot, the character arcs, and the sexy scenes, it gives away the goddamn reveal of the movie. Just like hearing Denzel announce they bugged us in the Inside Man trailer, this one gives away too much, namely, what's going on? Bad, bad, won't see it. You've built an empire from the ground up. Mr. Hale, it's an honor. The man who built New York. People will insist that your buildings make you immortal. Now, as you slip away, do you feel immortal? We offer humanity's greatest minds more time to fulfill their potential. With the working title, The Cell 2 Body Swab, one watches the trailer for <laughs> Selfless and wonders, why does Tarsum Singh believe the human mind to be such a torture chamber? But he's taking a consciousness out of Ben Kingsley's old body and into Ryan Reynolds's quote, empty vessel. Really more reckless than combining the solitary drum beat, the debaucherous radio rap, the Hans Zimmer blare, and the sword gnashing collage climax trailer tricks in a single trailer? Somebody arrest that director. Put him in the cell. Bad, bad. <laughs> oh, you win that round. Um, yeah, this one absolutely too many revelations you can stop short of like telling us exactly went wrong what went wrong with the process right good god and horrible title do not do that oh terrible with the slash do not terrible do, do not do that so sleeping with other people you got it buddy all right give the rom-com forum long enough and it can soak up anything in popular culture as a detour on the way to two beautiful people admitting their flaws and locking lips in front of something cool or at an event that where it's not appropriate to do so. Sleeping with other people is going to do that with sex addiction and the undeniable magnetism of Jason Sudeikis and Alison Brie. This movie train names the behavior that most assholes in romantic comedies display anyway and departs with stops at Jason Manzuka's Andrea Savage Mary Couple Station and the all-too-seldomly-visited Adam Brody Point. And then it takes us home. I'm down for this, <laughs> you comedians who have acting a little sad on your resume's special skills section. Good, good. My therapist suggested that I attend a program for love addiction. No, listen. Sam, I cheated on you. Was it my brother? Do you know I'm not attracted to your brother? Who is better than my brother? For some reason, I have trouble rooting for Jason Sudeikis. Maybe it's his haircut, the inherent glibness with which he delivers otherwise credible dialogue. But this seems like a fairly formulaic sex comedy where these people realize they need to be with each other in the end, blah, blah, blah. It's a charming little trailer of a movie I probably won't see. And it makes you feel good about love, even for a fleeting moment. Bad good. I'll probably hate watch this on television one of these days. That's fair. I tell you what's not fair. What? Jake Gyllenhaal's Southpaw. No, absolutely not. Go for it. Although it's probably not very good, Southpaw has a terrific trailer. It establishes the conflict, the character, and some interesting performances in camera work and otherwise pretty typical boxing drama. 
Jake Gyllenhaal is clearly working hard on this one, and that daughter looks like she's a force to be reckoned with. Forrest Whitaker as the sage boxing coach? Who can say no to that? My only issue with this trailer is that the tone sets that the tone, the tone it sets is very dark, ultimately forcing this into good bad. Would see under duress when chance makes us do a boxing-related pod. The more you get hit, the harder you fight. I get it. Let's go! Only now you've taken way too many hits hey. before you get off. You can't fight like that anymore. Well, my rebuttal is that I'm not sure any movie, any kind of movie, comes more prepackaged and fully formed for audience wants and expectations than a boxing movie. They keep being made, and actors keep chiseling their bodies to be in them, because sure, we'll go see a boxing movie. Which is why I think Southpaw's inclusion of MC Adams, otherwise known as Rachel McAdams, her death, when she plays boxer Billy Hope's wife, is the biggest trailer mishandling of 2015. But what do you expect of Antoine Fuqua, a director so bad he's somehow not even directing the Olympus' Fallen sequel? Nice muscle definition, Jake Gyllenhaal. We know you'll do anything for a movie. Bad, bad. (laughs) You took that one to task. It's because I was excited about it, and then I watched the trailer six months ago. And I'm phenomenal! <laughs> and decided I would never see it. Okay, great. We are cruising. We are at number 29. Unlike a recent flops, Spy looks to take the revolutionary tactic of putting Melissa McCarthy's wrong choice, wrong time comedy in a room with capable responders. The very tired comedy premise of an unlikely international agent who isn't ready for the world of espionage might have some charm here, as McCarthy's CIA analyst turned field agent expresses a real Chris Farley-esque pathos of inadequacy, while Jude Law, Allison Janney, Rose Byrne, and Jason Statham bust her chops over and over for not being good enough. Kept simple, kept short, spy could easily be bad good. I quit teaching and joined the CIA. I thought I was going to be this amazing spy, and I'm still just the same boring person I was. You play it too safe. I just hear my mom's voice. Just blend in. Let somebody else win. Making a wave isn't always brave. Brilliant. Give up on your dreams, Susan. Total shifts in trailers are a delicate thing. It's like the first scenes of the Naked Gun movies. Starts as serious action movie exposition, but once Leslie Nielsen pops in, all bets are off. I personally love Melissa McCarthy, big Gilmore Girls fan over here, and we'll see what she does in The Boss, but turning her into a cartoon character through silly slapstick roles, i.e. The Heat, Bridesmaids, Tammy, Identity Thief, doesn't do much for me. I'd love to see her do more challenging work, but essentially a remake of Spy Hard isn't the best approach. Bad, bad, and I probably won't see this. I hear you. I think the fact that it's a Paul Feig... Don't you think she could do better? Yeah... Yeah, I would. I guess I have faith that Paul Feig probably does right by her, much more so than Identity, sure. Identity Thief would. But for real, like secret agent spoofs, for God's sake, we gotta we gotta move on from those. Right. Do we have to move on from music biopics? We should maybe do that too. You're uh, you're up first. There's something pretty formulaic about the music biopic. Establish the characters, the artists, the people you want to root for, and the temperature of the time. In the case of Straight Outta Compton, the members of the hip-hop collective NWA. Next, establish the conflict. Per usual, it's society's uneasiness with change, their racism, and the socio-political climate during the late 80s and early 90s on the West Coast. Then, you dramatize a version of history and let that take over and see if anything sticks. It's risky to cast mostly unknowns to fill these iconic roles, but it's a gamble that might pay off. 
But because the genre is so tired, I don't know that seeing the expected pieces is that entertaining. Good, bad, but I'd probably watch it. You're listening to Compton's very own Ice Cube, Easy e and Dr. Dre. I gotta tell you, you are witnessing history. People are scared of you guys. You have a unique voice. The world needs to hear it. They want N.W.A.? Let's give them N.W.A. So Straight Outta Compton was certainly the most seen movie on this list this year that I didn't see. So it might be the most insight-worthy spot to analyze what maybe went wrong with its promotion? For one, it teases the traditional beats of a music biopic, because 80s and 90s hip-hop is now completely understandable in the same way as the rest of pop music. So my lack of enthusiasm could be narrative familiarity, mixed with the lack of star power, and trying not to think about all the troubling things I read about it. And I know it's two and a half hours. I'm going to wager good-bad. So we agree. We do agree. I would like to see that movie. I feel like I, sh- I should, just because it's you know, very low bar for the best like hip-hop biopic ever made. But Right. But man, the... Uh, the think pieces surrounding it, like, did it no favors. Right. I tell you what uh, <laughs> did no favors for uh, Terminator Genesis. Uh, it might have been the trailer. Okay. Uh, here we go. I've never seen a Terminator movie all the way through, so here goes. Wait, really? Yep. Oh, my God. So here goes. Terminator Genesis appears to be a movie about global warfare, androids, and time travel. Another movie that should not star Jason Clark in the lead role, it sends a non-Arnold Terminator back in time to fight a mean Terminator. And that time is a time of semi-automatic weapons, rectangular police cars, and old Arnold fighting young Arnolds. And if that's not what a Terminator movie is, I still don't know what it is. But when I hear the fifth movie in a franchise say it needs to stop the second movie in a franchise from happening, well, that's what movies is all about. And if any one of these babies hits the theater again, well, to quote Arnold, I'm coming back. This is all wrong. John sent me here to save you. From the Terminator that was sent back to kill me, I know, but we already took care of him. We? I've been waiting for you. So wait. This is the original Terminator premise, but it's not the original Terminator because the Terminator in the original Terminator terminated the other Terminator from the future, just like in Terminator 2. Even though Terminator 2 hasn't happened yet, and if this movie goes according to plan, Terminator needn't have happened at all? I'm in. Great Jason <laughs> Come on! Great Jason Clark speech at the beginning, too. Bad, good, and I'd watch this. God damn it. I didn't even rate it because I was just pretending to be confused. I think it looks horrible. I tell you what looks horrible. (laughs) The trailer for Jennifer Lopez in The Boy Next Door. Put simply, fuck this trailer. That's the whole movie in two minutes, and it's not even a good movie. God damn it. Bad, bad. Principal Warren. Good news. I've approved your request for Noah Sanborn to join your class. from my account sounds like you've been hacked you should really change your password your father seems to be around a lot now huh yeah i guess looking like a pretty tame entry into the field of what the great wesley morris calls 
Thing from Hell movies, the boy next door pits a professorial J-Lo against her stalking teenage neighbor, who, to avoid all confusion because he shares a name with my podcast partner, I'm going to call Noah Ballard. Because <laughs> J-Lo's entire career seems predicated on physical attraction and being in danger, this is a pretty obvious return to form as the loathsome Noah Ballard ensnares J-Lo via a friendship <laughs> with her son that appears to ominously involve a playful handgun obsession. But seriously, this is a weird kind of movie anyway, because it's only good if it has stars in it, you already know the ending, and if it's not that ending, then it's a horrifying movie. I'm going to be optimistic and say bad good with a really low bar. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, it's probably bad, bad. Yikes. Um, the Yeah, I was just so upset with this movie because it, like, because it knows that it is one of these genre movies, it just plays the whole thing out. And the only thing it doesn't show you is his Jennifer Lopez murdering Noah Ballard in the last scene. <laughs> exactly. Um the best and only thing that I heard about this movie in... Uh, oh, the Iliad first edition? Absolutely. I'm glad you brought it up. You want to explain that real quick? It's hilarious if people don't know it. Well, apparently it's a gift because she's an English teacher, Jennifer Lopez. Noah Ballard gives her a, <laughs> what he calls a first edition of the Iliad, a book that predates publishing. So that just the first edition of the Iliad does not exist. Or if it did, it would be like in... Aramaic or something in <laughs> scrolls. And a high school English teacher would probably not know what to do with it. Or be able to afford this this literally one only thing. He claims to have gotten it at a garage sale, right? <laughs> the, yeah, the, the, the London Museum was doing a garage yeah. sale for their least <laughs> interesting artifacts. Oh my god. Yeah. Alright, should we hop aboard the D train? I would love that. I kind of wish I hadn't said that just now, though. Um, Stretching the sitcom premise of a geek trying to get cred at the high school reunion by securing the prom king's RSVP into a full movie, the D-Train puts together the odd couple of Jack Black and James Marsden. The committee chair, Black, has to go chase down the now TV star, Marsden, to get anyone interested in the reunion, and Black apparently gets obsessive about it. And that's where the trailer's ace is hiding, at least in my optimistic viewing. It intimates with a quick collage and Catherine Hahn's exasperated, why are you acting so weird, that Black's character is hiding some motivation for caring this much. We saw in Bernie that Black can dive eerily deep into an inauspicious character. A dash of that here, and I'm going to say good good. Oliver Lawless. From high school? Yes, from high school on a national commercial. He did it. He made it. Zach, that was one of Daddy's good friends. Really? It was not. Hang up the bones. Casting Jack Black in stark realism is, in my opinion, always a good idea. He brings a silliness to the screen that is best when highlighted by the entire world around him playing the straight man. In this film, Black is to convince James Marsden, cast as a D-level actor, who's probably a douchebag in real life, James Marsden, anyway, to come to their high school reunion so other people will also attend. Together they behave badly, and I'm not really sure where this movie's going to land, but I like that about it. Makes me want to see it. Good, good. Would see. Hell yeah. I thought you were going to hate that one for some reason. No. I tell you what I did hate <laughs> was the marketing of the good dinosaur. I picked this one specifically because you complained about it. The reason The Good Dinosaur is one of the only Pixar flops is the fact that no one can figure out how to market this movie. 
The first trailer, as an example, doesn't detail the conflict of the movie, nor does it establish the characters. Instead, it becomes an of Monsters and Men music video about unlikely friends. But who gives a shit about that? Who gives a shit about the asteroid not hitting the Earth, if that's the theory you believe in about extinction of the dinosaurs? And who gives a shit about good dinosaurs? Our society believes in the narrative of dinosaurs as dangerous, potentially evil animals that kill people in theme parks. Ain't nobody got time for a new Land Before Time movie. Bad, bad, won't see. This might be the closest that we get, again, outside of that Kevin Costner one. Don't you moralize with me, the good dinosaur. What is it that makes your computer-animated Littlefoot the good dinosaur? Because it plays with the human boy in this alternate reality where dinosaurs' extinction-level event never occurred? Do the other dinos not play with humans? Considering the stunning universe building of Inside Out earlier this year, and of Monsters and Men's song covering up three quarters of the trailer makes me feel like this one was a real afterthought. With the ever-relevant caveat that I'm not a child and therefore not the target audience of this movie, this Pixar offering looks bad bad. Fair enough. Very close on that one. Yeah. I'm excited for this next one. Go for it, buddy. Sean Penn seems like he's trying to be the Daniel Day-Lewis of bad movies. (laughs) (laughs) Take three years off. Do Gangster Squad. Take another three off. Come back in a movie about a betrayed black ops guy. A man of guns. The gunman. The revenge story is clear from the outset as he cuddles in his sun-dappled bedroom with his lady friend. One imagines, and it's confirmed 60 seconds later, that she'll be the token in this game with former colleague Javier Bardem. Add in Idris Elba, Ray Winstone, and Mark Rylance to give pep talk speeches and warnings on the way to the climax, and the only question is really whether his lady friend dies, so he gets to do the Sean Penn grief freak out. Maybe bad good? Probably bad bad. It's on Netflix now. You heard of this native trigger, Jim. did some bad things. I did some bad things. Tell me. There's something formulaic but accessible about the trailer <laughs> to the gunman. Sean Penn isn't a bad person, but he did a bad thing, and years later needs to pay for his sins or his girlfriend gets it because Javier Bardem and Mark Rylance are assholes or something. Whatever. It looks like a smart international thriller with some good one-liners. Or at least people repeating, I gotta go, I gotta go. Well, Chance, I gotta go. Bad good at its finest, and I'll catch it on Netflix when I have the time. <laughs> um, I will say that it's funny that like Liam Neeson has made... This was done by the people who made Taken, right? Oh, yeah. And Liam Neeson has made like 10 of these movies in the last three years. And in every one, there's kind of like a, like a humility to Liam Neeson, because he's always like, I got to save someone else. Like, it's never really about him. And I like that Sean right. Penn is like, I want to do that, but I want to show off my old, gross, ripped body when I do it, which is like <laughs> a very Sean Penn thing to do. Yeah. I mean, he's like that really troubling facial hair, too, to establish that he's like 10 years older. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. The next one was kind of a challenge for me. Really? Uh, when watching, it's hard to remove 
myself completely from cultural awareness about The Last Witch Hunter, which certainly cannot be a good movie. <laughs> First off, Summit Entertainment, who distributed this film, hasn't distributed a good film since The Hurt Locker. Mm. Second, this movie has Vin Diesel in it. Vin Diesel is not cast as a good actor because it doesn't need to be a good actor. Last, I know this isn't a good movie because the trailer doesn't actually tell you what the movie is about. It's just Michael Caine's great voice contrasting Vin Diesel's gravelly utterance of non-specific threats. <laughs> Good on whoever put this. Tra- uh, good on whoever put this trailer together, though. Couldn't have been easy. Bad, bad. Fuck no. <laughs> you are the greatest soldier of the Axe and Cross. In a war between our world and the next. <laughs> All right. Well, beyond looking like utter garbage, the last witch- <laughs> <laughs> beyond looking like utter garbage, the last witch hunter highlights a rare form of trailer made especially for Vin Diesel in the tradition of Stallone, Schwarzenegger, and Seagal before him. The kind with a masculine protagonist of so few words that someone else, a weaker, more verbose man, must start narrating the trailer before he'll appear and say a line. In this case, that weak man is weak because he's Michael Caine and a hundred years old. And Diesel's first line (laughs) is explaining to a witch who doesn't know he'll be hunted, you will be hunted. And then the trailer is over, but not before he swings a flaming sword and lets you know this is probably Resident Evil quality fare that the studio would release in video on demand if it could have a do-over. Clearly bad, bad. (laughs) Very nice. Man, we're coming down to it. Are you having a good time? I'm having a really good time. I'm having a great time. I'm a little sweaty. <laughs> a lot of uh, re- lot of inflection. My jaw kind of hurts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Mm. You know whose jaw must hurt? It's Henry Cavill and the <laughs> man from Uncle. <laughs> These segues are great. The man from Uncle is a movie I only want to see when I'm watching the trailer. And one I hope that the bad good principle applies to as a whole. Because your better judgment can certainly assess that the statue actors Henry Cavill and Army Hammer lack the swagger, that certain mouthy grace that makes a Guy Ritchie movie pop. I'm also skeptical of trying to pull off an odd couple movie, the teaming of an American-Soviet spies, with two people who are the same. But when you see their handsome jawlines and the 1950s costuming, I think I could enjoy watching it in the same way they probably enjoyed making it. Bad good. We recently discovered the existence of an international criminal organization with ties to former Nazis. Rumor has it they've built an atom bomb. We have no choice but to work together to infiltrate this organization. We'll leave you two to get acquainted. What a charming trailer the man from (laughs) Uncle has. Henry Cavill being dashing, Army Hammer trying on an insufferable but somehow palatable <laughs> Russian accent. The 1960s, I think it's the 60s. Okay. The, the non-specific funky music cues and that beautiful girl. What more does one need from an international Cold War era spy movie? I don't love Guy Ritchie, but I'd check this out. Bad good. Sure. Tinker well-tailored soldier spy. There you go. Um, Oh, right. On to the perfect guy. 
You know, I'm clearly not the target demographic for this movie, though its existence makes me wonder what my own perfect guy movie would look like, (laughs) where I play the titular perfect guy. Noah arrives with sweeping romantic gestures, references to literature and films, self-deprecating humor, but then slowly, but surely, his wild insecurity is revealed, manifesting in bouts of excessive napping and non-specific grumpiness, climaxing in spending too much time at his parents' house talking shit with his high school friends, but certainly not doing anything super creepy beyond my occasional need to share intimate details with a large audience for my sick, twisted need to control the narrative of my own life. Good, good? That was extremely dark. (laughs) It was like a switch went off. You know I never hurt you, right? Do I? Leah, open the door! Another thing from hell movie. And I saw a kitchen knife unsheathed at the end of this trailer, so the perfect guy knows its conventions really well. Not to mention the reluctant police detective who says repeatedly there's not much he can do for Sana Lathan about the once so lovely, now so violently obsessive Michael Ely. All a movie like this has to do to be bad good is hit its beats with passion, and the beat of inviting her dad, Charles S. Dutton, to a Giants game as the final act of perfection before the fall is a good one. Bad good. There you go. I like that. That was very creative, you imagining yourself in that really scary way. Well, I just didn't have anything to say about it. Yeah, I got you. Oh, you got man. anything to say? I tell you what, I also had trouble coming up with things to say. <laughs> oh. All right, we're here to talk about Victor Frankenstein. In the ever-retold Frankenstein story, is doing it quickly and doing it with banter really a take? That's my biggest issue with the trailer for Victor Frankenstein. It stars James McAvoy as the good doctor and Daniel Radcliffe as Igor. But it's hiding of commitment to any style or angle on a story that's been told grimly, lampooned, and spun off spells trouble. My guess is that means it doesn't have an angle. And it's not a role I'm aching to see either actor play anyway. I'd like to watch Adam Driver play Dr. Frankenstein after seeing Kylo Ren. So why watch this? Bad, bad. Igor... You and I shall be at the very heart of a scientific enterprise that will change the world. We shall create a life out of death. It's alive. Do you realize how significant this is? Oh, I have an inkling. Charles Xavier and Harry Potter team up for what Chance and I posit as probably an unnecessary remake of the Frankenstein story. There are some explosions. The bad guy from Spectre and BBC Sherlock is the police detective. It probably ends the way most Frankenstein stories end. Bad, bad. You really did have trouble there. But I like that you assumed we'd be on the same page. That's good. Yeah. I'm really glad that this one's last, because boy, do I have stuff to say about this. I tell you what bothers me about the trailer for We Are Your Friends. It's that I'm watching a trailer for a movie called We Are Your Friends. What kind of title is that? Probably a reference to some major, albeit inevitably cliche moment within the film. But this is a cool-looking movie. Zac Efron looks as though he feels he's in a film that's going to get him his first real award recognition, but nobody saw this motherfucker. And if we're evaluating the trailer, which is a major component of the marketing in this film, I have to ask, why was this movie given such a bad title? It's not catchy. It's hard to remember. It isn't what it needs to be to have this movie be hip, which is what it needs to be, considering the pretty corny, millennial-grabbing rhetoric of the first few frames. But nonetheless, I think there could be a good movie in here. Maybe. Maybe bad good. 
I might check this out if I'm bored. Really be an apologist for it after being moved by its sensibilities. Whatever. <laughs> Study halls, SATs, liberal arts, student loans, layoffs, bailouts, broken dreams. This is not our future. Things are different for us. You can invent an app, start a blog, sell things online. My friends and I, we promote parties. Well, full disclosure, the Hollywood Handbook podcast made fun of this trailer for this DJ as social entrepreneur movie more thoroughly and creatively than I ever could. But you gotta call it out right away for equating study halls with government bailouts when Zac Efron is listing the things his upstart DJ character doesn't see as his future. From there, the trailer postulates that all you need to do is invent Instagram to be happy, and that DJing, an art form which inherently requires you to have hours of music to perform it, is only about one song. Is this 21st century boiler room? And if so, why do I find the idea of DJs trying to get famous more repugnant than exploitative stock hawking? Maybe it's because I have no ambition. My whole life is a study hall, and I think this movie looks bad bad. (laughs) We did it! We got through it, buddy. 40 trailers. Can I just wrap up a little bit about trailers? Yes, you bet. So what can one say about the state of theatrical trailers in this day and age? Most of them are pretty by the book. A lot of them open with Jason Clark saying something hyperbolic. (laughs) It takes a lot to make a good trailer. Sometimes you have a shitty movie and you have to do something with it. So you make it kind of vague. Sometimes you put a grand cheesy indie song in the background or tear-jerking violins while you watch a fucking dinosaur be friends with a human and are supposed to feel something, guys, that will make you go to the theater. Sometimes you can get to the essence. You can create something interesting, a veritable short film that sums up a portion of the whole plot of a film, establishing the character trajectories and the overall stakes. To convey the gestalt of a movie the way a friend would tell you about a movie is such a difficult thing. Because you have to imagine what it takes to be persuaded by a friend. And some of these trailers understood what I needed. I was the target demographic. Mississippi Grind was like, what's up, Noah? You liked Half Nelson, right? You want to hang out? Others, like the perfect guy, played on the fears of women who need reassurance that that the men that they're currently dating are good enough because sure, the sex isn't that great, but at least they're not trying to kill you, right? Just take yourself to Magic Mike XXL and perpetuate the underlying male fear that we're all physically inadequate but it was interesting to observe and marginally interact with movies I hadn't seen for pleasure or for the purposes of this podcast this year. There were sports movies, biopics, vehicles for our aged stars we've yet to put out to pasture. It was another year in Hollywood, 2015, and that's something one can say about it in retrospect. Lovely. That was great. What a good wrap-up. Thanks. Um, My favorites of the year? Yeah. Oof. Um, You go first. My favorite movie I saw this year uh, was Sicario, which is a movie we didn't talk about. I didn't see that one. I loved it. Loved it. Um, my favorite one we talked about was probably Ex Machina, uh, but I re- okay. really liked Mad Max Fury Road as well. Um, I don't know. I really liked The Martian a lot. I liked uh, I liked Jurassic World a lot. Two movies I did um, not like that much. No, I know that. I still want to see a couple. Like, I want to see The Revenant yeah. and Carol um, and the new Tarantino. Yep. Um, I tell you what I really did like was Mistress America. Miss- good. The new yeah. Noah Baumbach Good call. Movie. That one was really funny. Um, it's probably the, probably the, the tour was pretty good. Mistress America, sorry, was probably the best comedy that came out this year. 
Yeah, um, I would agree with that. I thought the end of the tour was pretty good. Definitely um, worth one watch, I would say. Well, Chance, um, I'm I'm quite excited about uh, our next our next podcast because, and uh, this is, I guess, a surprise announcement to make on the air. Huge um, for our listeners. Huge for our <laughs> listeners. Chance and I will be reunited for the next podcast. For the first time since episode two. For the first time since episode two, we will be back in Lincoln, Nebraska, ringing in the new year. We we're returning to the scene of the crime where Chance and I met. Yeah. And, uh, we're going to watch a shit ton of movies, come up with a genre, and then, uh, you know, that record it face-to-face for a change. And uh, I can't even imagine what the outcome is going to be. I think it will be pretty fun. I think episode two is probably one of our best, just because we were staring right at each other. We shall, we shall reconvene in Lincoln, my friend. Sounds great. I will see you soon. And everyone listening, thank you so much for listening to episodes this year. We super appreciate it. As always, you can find us at Be Real Guys on Twitter and listen to all the episodes at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Be well. I'm building a birdhouse. Oh, yeah, and you cannot kill the demon without stabbing the good boy. In a world, in the year 2017, in a time of tradition, in a city where anything can happen, in a war that isn't his, every day in New York City, on the Miami Police Force, in the deep south, from the sewers of God.